Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the Senior Content Director here at Word on Fire. Today we're going to pick up the thread we began weaving a couple weeks ago when we shared the first half of Bishop Barron's recent Q&A with a group of students from Princeton University. The Q&A was hosted by our good friend, Leo Labresco Sargent, who is a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute and was graciously hosted by the Aquinas Institute at Princeton's Catholic Campus Ministry. Again, if you missed the first half, look back in the archives. I think it was episode 270. It was two weeks ago. But we're going to pick up in the middle of their Q&A and continue on through the end. So sit back and enjoy this lively Q&A between Bishop Barron and students at Princeton University. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Your Excellency. Hi. Um, I'm wondering, um, who were some of your biggest role models and influences, both when you were entering college and as you were um, about to leave college? And if you have any suggestions for thinkers or lives of the saints um, to read while we're in these different stages of our life. Yeah, good. When I was in high school, it was Thomas Aquinas made the biggest difference in my life. Um, I heard one of the arguments for God's existence when I was a kid. I was 14 in freshman high school. And even though I was a Catholic going to Mass, I, I wasn't really all that interested in religion. I was interested in baseball at that point in my life. But something about that experience of hearing that argument had a huge impact on me. And it led me down this path. And it's, it's really God's truth to say I've never substantially left that path from the time I was 14 to my present age, which I won't tell you. But... Um, uh, Thomas, therefore, has been one of the touchstones for my life. And uh, done most of my academic work around Aquinas. Um, he's the one I've gone back to most often in my own writing. Uh, most of my work sort of ends up centering around him in some way. So Aquinas, you know, the, the patron for your institute there, is the most important figure for me. Uh, when I was a young man, too, Thomas Merton, he was not read as much anymore. I don't know if you even know that name, but... Merton, who had been a um, kind of a, a worldling, to use an, an old-fashioned term, a, a man of the world. He was a master's degree from Columbia in English literature. He wanted to be a, a novelist like Hemingway. He had traveled the world. He was, he was kind of a, a you know, very secularized figure. And then he, um, through a long, interesting process, becomes a Catholic and then eventually a Trappist monk, one of the most intense expressions of the monastic life. I read his, his uh, autobiography called The Seven-Story Mountain when I was about 16, and it had a huge impact on me. I'm not a Trappist, as you can well see, but Merton made more viscerally real to me what I was reading about abstractly in Aquinas. You know what I'm saying? Is the ideas in Aquinas became very vividly real in this American story. So he's an you know, older generation than mine, certainly, but an American um, young man falling in love with God. And um, I, I can still vividly remember reading that book for the first time. I've reread it, I don't know, 10, 12 times since then. So those two figures, Thomas Aquinas from the 13th century, Thomas Merton from the 20th, were two big um, influences. Another one, you know, it's because I, I saw Man for All Seasons when I was probably around that same age for the first time, uh, Thomas More was a touchstone figure for me. Um, you know, someone who lived with that kind of integrity and uh, didn't run to the uh, scaffold. You know, I mean, he's someone who, who made his way very 
cagily within the world and, and made it to the highest levels of the society of his time, but never abandoned his great religious principles. And when, when push came to shove, he said, no, I'm, I'm going to stand with them. That to me, and he's a layman, uh, a great model, I think, for people who are Catholic and also want to move in the world. So those figures were uh, important to me uh, when I was a young man, like around you know your age. I think it's amazing the role that memoir and even fiction can play in helping us picture not only Catholic theology, but how it's applied in a Catholic life. That yeah. reading Merton's autobiography gives us a sense of what it means to live the faith at the individual level. Mm-hmm. A Man for All Seasons meant a lot to me in understanding it, who yeah. the martyrs were. Yeah. So I'll confess that the first time I read the play was with a group of strangers who, when I came in, picked me immediately to read Cromwell, and I felt that- terrible. <laughs> You're the bad Because <laughs> he's the villain. Yeah. But our next, our next question is from Juliana, who has really a question about when we're called to be those models, just like those memoirs and you know, fictional portrayals of the saints are. Hi, Bishop Baird. Thank you Hi. so much for um, speaking to us today. Um, my question is, um, do you suggest that... Um, we lead more by action and wait for others to ask about our faith? Or um, should we actively um, talk about our faith to those that we want to um, evangelize? Like, how do we take that first step? It depends. Um, it depends on the person. And you can read the situation on the ground much better than I ever could, you know, from a distance. Because it, it depends. Uh, like, when I was a kid... Again, it wasn't quite being evangelized. I was already evangelized. But like, what awakened me was this, this abstract philosophical argument. I don't know why. I, I mean, I was a smart enough kid, I suppose, in school. But, but I wasn't really in a, a bookish type. I was a baseball player. But something sang to me in that argument. And so I'm always resistant to people say, oh, oh you know, arguments and all that. that. Don't use those. And oh, no, no. They, it worked in my case. I don't know if you know the name William Lane Craig, the um, evangelical philosopher who has debated the great atheist very uh, effectively. I had an interesting conversation with him a couple years ago, and he said the same thing, that when he was a young man, it was arguments for God's existence that really woke him up, and that he too felt a resistance to those who say, oh, you know, oh, don't, don't, don't talk about academic things, because it depends on the person, you know. Now, in other cases, not at all. In <laughs> other cases, people wouldn't respond at all to that approach. And it's much more, as you say, your, your lifestyle, your witness, uh, the, the way you live your life, that can have a huge impact. I'll tell you a story I've always loved. Uh, there was a, a man that I taught when I was a professor at Mundelein Seminary outside Chicago. And he was an older vocation. He came to us like when he was in his late 40s or early 50s even. And he had a successful career, and, uh, but at midlife, I think he was, he was divorced, and he was kind of drifting and had sort of lost his way. He had plenty of money and all that success in the worldly sense, but he was just kind of drifting. But one day, he's walking past the entrance to Holy Name Cathedral, which is right in downtown Chicago, the big Catholic cathedral. And out in front after Mass was this little priest. I knew him very well. He's died since, named Bobby McLaughlin, Father McLaughlin who was the pastor. And he was this little Irish sort of uh, fireball, you know, just full of joy and life and humor and jokes and, and depth as well. He was a smart man. Well, anyway, this, this man is walking by. He hadn't been in a church for years. I think he was born and raised Catholic, but he had left a long time ago. 
and he sees Father McLaughlin. And he walked up to him, didn't know him from Adam, walked up and he said, what you got, I want. And Father McLaughlin said, okay, let's have coffee. And so later that week, they sat down and had coffee. And that was the beginning of his journey that led him to the seminary and eventually to the priesthood. Now, I tell that perhaps tiresome story just to illustrate it wasn't arguments. It wasn't answering questions. It was he just saw something in, in Father McLaughlin that he thought was so compelling and so alive. And he said, I want that, you know. So that can be very effective evangelization. Um, the evangelist has got to have a lot of uh, tricks in the bag. You know what I mean? You've got, you got to be able to do a lot of different things depending on the person you're dealing with. Um, but I think to your point, the, the witness of your life can be a number one. I think the secret trick is that the first step of being a good evangelist is being a saint, yeah. and then everything else is more to get you to that point. Right. But right. there's there such an the attractiveness best theologians, to the too, as Baltazar said, the best knowers of the faith are the ones who practice it most clearly. And we next have a question from Katie, who has a question about um, how evangelization is different from other kinds of conflicts or arguments we might be in. Okay. Go ahead, Katie. Hi, Bishop Barron. Uh, um, so I was listening to your uh, Word on Fire podcast with Brandon Vaught recently oh, yeah. about the Creating Atheist book. Yeah. Um, and first of all, I really appreciated your rants about it. It just validated everything <laughs> that I was feeling. <laughs> Good. Um, but I was, I, both of you made a point that there was something very manipulative about his approach. And the question that came to mind for me was, how is that approach different from what evangelization, like true evangelization is trying to do? How is it different? Yeah. And to be fair, you know, I, I am no great student of that street evangel or street epistemology. Brandon sort of brought me into that book and we talked about it, but I wouldn't claim to have a great, you know, grasp of it. But I would say that in the measure that you ever become manipulative, you're now a bad evangelist. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to coerce people or trick them or manipulate them or play mind games, then you're not evangelizing effectively, just by definition. Now, it doesn't mean you can't intellectualize and you can't declare what you think is true. But by definition, a manipulative evangelization is what the Pope often calls proselytizing. Um, it's, a, it's a word that's not used it often, but he uses it a lot. And I think all he means by it is bad evangelization. Evangelizing in a sort of browbeating or, as you say, manipulative uh, way that's not respecting the person at all. Uh, I think, again... Witness with your life and lead with the questions that people have. What, what are you talking about as you go on your way? Think Jesus and the road to Emmaus. What, what are you talking about? What's on your mind? Tell me. You know, I'm curious. And um, whatever you tell me will lead to Christ. That, that's a basic intuition of any evangelist. Even if you say, I, I, hey, what I'm talking about is how miserable my life is. Watch every single Billy Graham sermon. Basically has the structure of your life is kind of miserable, isn't it? Well, and you've tried this and this and this and this and that. Well, I got the one thing that'll work. So, you know, if someone's talking about their own misery, that's, that's a way into the gospel. Someone's talking about uh, their career aspirations. That's, that's a way in. Someone's talking about sports, you know, or something beautiful. That's a way in. So I think that's the, that's the overall method is um, listen, walk with them, 
um, but the minute you become manipulative, you're, you're ipso facto a bad evangelizer. I think that's a great distinction to draw. And one of the things that really stands out, what's different about speaking the truth about Christianity versus being a spin doctor or just trying yeah. to win, um, is that right. evangelists are actually in a much more dependent position of radical trust, of saying, tell me about yourself. I trust that something in that leads to Christ because I know he made you, rather right. than I have all the answers at the start of this conversation and I have control over it the whole time. Yeah, no, quite right. But it's just a little scary leaving that much room for the Holy Spirit when you're talking about something important. No, and you're right. And that's why the internet, too, it's easier space. I'm sitting on the, you know, my computer uh, keyboard and I can rattle off some argument. I can't see the person's face. I can't see their reaction. I don't know anything about their life. And that's why that can lead to proselytizing in the bad way. But when you're one on one with somebody and you see how they're reacting and, and their body language and you hear about their life, well, you're not going to be offering little glib, you know, responses. I do have a follow-up question then. Please. Just when you are on the internet and you don't have that kind of access and you feel less like you're talking to someone <clears> person <throat> to person, how do you know when it's worth it to engage or are there anything you can do to be better able to recognize that person's full dignity as a child of God, even when they're just, you know, a little avatar that's not even their real face? Right. And I wrestle all the time with that. I've been doing it for now for 20 years, and I, I still wrestle with it a lot. One little trick I do is, I guess it's right to call it a trick, is um, I always address someone as friend. Friend, comma. And it's just a signal to me, really, more than to the person, like, okay, I'm trying to signal that I, I know you're a person. You're not just words on the screen. Um, it, it's, it's trying to signal to me, and I hope to the other person, that, that I, what I want is a, some kind of personal you know, contact. I think maybe it's easier to know when it's gone bad. You can tell when, okay, this conversation is now dysfunctional because we're basically yelling at each other, or we're basically trying to one-up each other. Uh, it, I think it becomes very clear, and it's it's marvelous, isn't it, when you can sense, no, this person really wants to know. This person really is curious, and they're, they're, they've been interested in something you said, and they want to know more. Or they've got an honest question. There's all of that, which is great. And then there's the other side, which, again, mea culpa, we all fall into it, which is, I'm here trying to win an argument. I'm trying to show you how smart I am. And by the way, you really hurt my feelings with that last comment. And so I, when it reaches that point, it's like, all right, all right, stop. <laughs> you know, it's probably better at this point to stop. Like, yeah, I'll tell you something again under the rubric of mea culpa that I've done is if you go back, I don't do it a lot, but if you go back to, let's say, a video from years ago and you look at an exchange that, that I've had with somebody, and I might have thought like, oh, boy, that was really good. That was really clever. Boy, I really won that one. And then you read it, and you think, oh, my gosh, I sound so patronizing, or I sound so condescending, or so Mr. Know-it-all, you know? Well, I, I always take those as kind of the Holy Spirit reminding me of like, okay, you know, you're not as clever as you think you are, and, and this is not a forum for showing off. So that's a good thing for anyone involved in the internet side of it to be aware of, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like the real challenge is to do these things for God and not yeah. for us. Um, and right. Paul, I think you have a question that's really about how we carry that over um, to all parts of our life. Are you with us to ask it? 
Hi. Hi. Yeah, I'm right here. Uh, hello, Bishop Barron. Great Hi. to be able to speak with you today. Yeah, um, so I had a question about specifically St. Jose Maria Escriva talks a lot about um, this idea of unity of life, about orienting kind of all of your life in every aspect toward God, and mm-hmm. specifically um, the ways that sanctification of work um, can kind of act in that, in that regard. Yeah. And I was just wondering specifically for, for me and for other students listening, how you could give us some advice about how to sanctify our work and then just in general, how to specifically in, in the student life to really orient everything toward God. Yeah, it's good. It's a great principle uh, from Escriva. And I, I've called it, you know, finding the center. And I get that from Merton too and lots of the mystical people that God has to be the, the organizing principle of your life. And, and I've used the rose window a lot as the image for that. If, if Christ is the center, then the rest of your life is organized in these kind of beautiful harmonic patterns around that center. So all the elements of the rose are the different aspects of you, inside and outside, the things you do, the, your relationships, your uh, entertainment life, your private life, your public life, that all of it is meant to be centered finally on Christ. Does, does everything belong to him? Well, it's a good point of, um, of examination of conscience. And maybe use that rose window image. So think of your life, you know, all its aspects, everything I just went through and everything else. All your friendships, do they, do they belong to him? Are they under the aegis of his love? Are they leading you to a deeper rapport with him? What you're reading, is it serving that purpose? Your entertainment. Would you be comfortable if Jesus were sitting right next to you when you're seeking whatever entertainment you're seeking? Your friendships, would you be comfortable inviting him around that same table with you? You know, um, So your work, okay, I don't know what your work is. Your work now as a student, I suppose. Um, is it ordered to his love and to his truth? Uh, is it serving his purposes ultimately? Let's say you're studying, I don't know what you're studying, but you know, business. Okay, fine, uh, you know, money-making and whatever your business interest is, but is all that directed finally to his purposes? I've had the privilege of knowing some, some marvelous business leaders in my life who are deeply Christian, have made lots of money, and have found a way to, to devote it to the church in beautiful ways. Good. Whatever your work is, does it belong to him? So do the rose window exercise. Is this, think of, of maybe get a, on, your, on your computer, get an image of like the North Rose at Notre Dame, one of these beautiful roses. And then as you look at each medallion in it, just think of a different part of your life. Um, what's not nailed down? And now we're all sinners. We talk about original sin. That original sin is, a, is a, it, it's, uh, destroying the harmony of that window and making it kind of a mess and a cacophony, right? Um, what's not nailed down in your life? What doesn't belong to him completely? Remember C.S. Lewis's image, I think it's Lewis, about the house. I've always liked that as, you get the house, with all the rooms in the house. Um, and Christ, oh yeah, you know, once a week he comes into the parlor and we sit down and we visit, and then I'm glad that he leaves, you know, because I want the whole house to myself. And the point is, like Jesus to Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm moving in. And I'm moving into every room, <laughs> right? Well, that's making him the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Dominus, right? He's meant to dominate the whole of your life. 
Well, does he? And we're all sinners, so the answer is no to some degree for all of us. But that's the goal. <laughs> Invite him into every room in your house. Make sure everything in the rose window is linked to him. It's a very intimidating uh, a part of prayer, I think, because there's always yeah. that moment where it's easy to ask for God's will to be done in our life until we look at the lives of the saints and think, yep. oh, but, but please not as it was you know, in St. Catherine of Siena's life. Her life was very intimidating. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, how, do we, how do we have the courage to ask for the full measure of what God wants for us? That's the whole point of the exercises of Ignatius, isn't it? Is to reach that point. And having done the exercises a couple times, the eight-day retreat, you, there's a moment that you're meant to come to where you make that move. And I found it exceptionally hard both times. Namely, that even the things that I am most afraid of, Lord, give those to me if it's your will, right? Uh, to come to that point and be able to say it is, is spectacularly difficult. Because you know? uh, that really makes it pointed. Is okay, what am I most afraid of? All right, one, two, three. Lord, give those to me if it's your will for me. Um, that's radical stuff. That's where the saints live. And, uh, you know, good. It's like, well, there's Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods, and we see these, you know, tremendous examples of this perfection. Well, the saints are like that in the spiritual order. Um, and you pray <laughs> that you might move into that space. I think the litany of humility is one of those, <clears throat> you know, scary but good prayers also yeah. for the full measure of what we want from God. Yeah. Yeah, wanting yeah. what he wants for us. We're nearing the end of our time, so I'm going to Are do we? a little housekeeping oh. and then give you one last question. Okay, I went fast. Now, Bishop, for one final question, sure. you know, I want to ask, for the Princeton students, uh, almost everyone is not on campus this semester. Everyone's yeah. separated. Uh, the school felt it wasn't safe to bring people back. So what is one way that people can work on the project of evangelization at a time when they're not even sure they're getting to see their friends in person? Well, you know what I would do during this time? Is don't worry so much about how do I reach out and make contact. That'll come. I mean, please, God, this thing will be over, I hope, relatively soon. What I would do is cultivate your own spiritual life. Um, I've tried to see this time as a, as a gift, and it has been for me in many ways. It's been an odd sort of blessing. But to all of you, um, do a holy hour every day, or if, if you can't handle that, a holy half hour. Um, spend time. I don't know if you have the blood sacrament on, uh, is it reserved there, Leah, where you are, or where is it? We, we have it reserved in the chapel, but we're not allowed into the chapel. Oh, right. So okay. happily, okay. the local parish has been allowing us to hold mass and adoration oh, good. there. Well, yeah, so go there or wherever you find the Blessed Sacrament and spend that half hour, that hour in prayer. Um, the time will come when you reach out again directly. But I think take advantage of this time of um, deeper interiority. I'll mention Thomas Merton again. Someone asked him, what's the best thing I can do to improve my prayer life? And he said, take the time. <laughs> Simple and good and true, it seems to me. So take the time to... Um, be with the Lord, and pray and study and cultivate your relationship with Him in the silence of this time. And then it's like a, the seed will burst forth, you know, in time. But um, take advantage of this uh, odd moment that nobody, you know, seven months ago was expecting and uh, see what the Lord is, is um, 
um, calling you to do. But I say deepen your prayer life. Thank you so much for that and for joining us tonight. Oh, my pleasure. You, Thank you. Would you lead us in a final prayer and blessing? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Lord, giver of all good things, we thank you for this time together. Lord, fill everybody who's part of this call with the spirit of, uh, of evangelization. Fill us with the spirit of your Son that will lead us out to the world with his challenging and uh, at times taunting and uplifting word. Father, give us grace and give us courage and give us prudence in the work that we do. I make all these prayers in Jesus' name, he who is Lord forever and ever. And the Lord be with you. With your spirit. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon all of you and remain with you forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much one more time for joining us. <laughs> You're welcome. And you know, I really hope that we see just an incredible harvest uh, at the end of this period from the way we've all been scattered to do yeah. work we didn't know we were called to. Amen. Thanks, Leah. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, all of our attendees, yeah. for joining us. God bless you all. Well, we hope you enjoyed that wonderful Q&A between Bishop Barron and students at Princeton University. A big thanks to our good friend, Leah Labresco Sargent for hosting the discussion. And also gratitude goes to the Aquinas Institute at Princeton's Catholic Campus Ministry. Thanks again for helping make this Q&A happen. The last couple weeks, we have been mentioning a brand new book from Word on Fire. It is titled, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church. I'm the author, Bishop Barron wrote the foreword to the book, and it's an excellent guide for any parent, grandparent, priest, teacher, catechist, anyone who knows young people who have drifted away from God or the church. And I think that pretty much describes everyone, doesn't it? Unfortunately, so many people are drifting away from the church, especially young people, but a lot of us don't know what to do about that problem. We throw up our hands in despair or we just sit back passively and hope that maybe they'll come back once they get married or once they have kids. But this book will give you an actionable game plan to actually take steps right now to help them reverse the momentum and return to the church. You can learn more and pick up your copy of the book at the website wordonfire.org return, wordonfire.org return. And we hope you enjoy this book, which I think will be a great tool for so many people in the church. Well, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. 